And so, ladies and gentlemen, with a great deal of pride and pleasure, I present to you Electro, the Westinghouse Moto Man. Electro, come here. And here he comes, ladies and gentlemen, walking up to greet you under his own power. You see, all I need to do is to speak into this phone, and Electro does exactly what I tell him to do, sometimes. But I don't see why I'm telling Electro's story when he's perfectly able to tell his own. So let's listen and see what Electro has to say to us today. All right, Electro, will you tell your story, please? Who? Me? Yes, you. Okay, toots. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be very glad to tell my story. I am a smart fellow, as I have a very fine brain of 48 electrical relays. It works just like a telephone switchboard. If I get a wrong number, I can always blame the operator. Thank you. And by the way, I see a lot of good numbers out in our audience today. Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. I am Michael Bradley, and this is episode 19. This time out, we will be looking at the Superman story from the 1939 issue of New York World's Fair Comics. This comic, as the title might suggest, was a special comic produced by DC to tie into the World's Fair in New York. In 1939, America was clawing its way out of the depths of the Great Depression, and the larger world was inching towards war. The World's Fair in New York, which was the second largest in the nation ever, offered a picture of a brighter future, what could be and what must be, a veritable world of tomorrow. According to Wikipedia, the official pamphlet for the fair described it like so. The eyes of the fair are on the future not in the sense of peering toward the unknown nor attempting to foretell the events of tomorrow in the shape of things to come, but in the sense of presenting a new and clearer view of today in preparation for tomorrow, a view of the forces and ideas that prevail as well as the machines. To its visitors, the fair will say, here are the materials, ideas, and forces at work in our world. These are the tools with which the world of tomorrow must be made. They are all interesting, and much effort has been expended to lay them before you in an interesting way. Familiarity with today is the best preparation for the future. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Byrne reboot in 1986. 
follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. The 1939 issue of New York's World's Fair Comics was first made available at the World's Fair itself on the fair's opening day of April 30, 1939. It was produced primarily to be sold at the New York's World's Fair. However, there were also advertisements in the comics that we'll be covering over the next few months where you could clip a coupon, mail it in with the money, and order the comic that way. There's no date or even a year on the cover of the book because the book was sold during the entirety of the fair, which was open from April to October. There's no number either, and I've always supposed that they fully intended this to be a one-time deal. However, the next spring, they would release another World's Fair comic, which we'll be talking about down the road. The comic was a whopping 96 pages and had a heavy cardboard cover rather than the paper cover like a regular comic. It had a cover price of 25 cents, making it the largest and most expensive comic that they had produced to this point. As the story goes, though, it seems the 25 cent price didn't fly very well, because later, stickers would be placed over the price, lowering the cost of the book to 15 cents. This book is historic, as far as Superman is concerned anyway, because it is the first time that Superman has appeared in a comic outside of Action Comics which is a significant first step in the journey that will eventually see the Superman family expand into an entire line of titles. And that will include Action, Superman, World's Finest, Adventure Comics and Superboy, as well as Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane, Supergirl, and more. The cover, or well the main part of the cover anyway, was by Vin Sullivan, who was also the book's editor and this cover was actually his last artistic effort for the company. It shows a kid standing in front of the Trilon and the Perisphere, two structures that were constructed especially for the World's Fair, and they were pretty much the iconic symbol of the fair in all its marketing, both then and even today. Down the right side of the cover are five headshots illustrating some of the many features inside the book, including Superman, Zaytara, and others. The Grand Comic Books database credits these headshots to Fred Gardner, and I'm not sure that I quite agree with that, but I'm going to defer to them on the credit because I, they, they just know more about it than I do. Um, if it is Gardner, this book marks the first time that Superman has been drawn by someone other than Joe Schuster or the Schuster Shop. And regardless of who the cover is, though, the most striking thing about the Superman image on this cover is that Superman is colored with blonde hair, which, given the time that this book came out, is a bit eye-opening. Inside the book, Superman's story actually has a title, Superman at the World's Fair, which <laughs> isn't really the most uh, imaginative title, but given that it's the first Superman story that's actually been given an official title, we gotta take what we can get. The story is only 12 pages, where Superman's stories to this point have typically been 13, except for the one in Action Comics number 5, which was only 9 pages for some reason. The story, as always, was written by Jerry Siegel and drawn by Joe Schuster. I couldn't find any other credits for this issue anywhere, so it's possible that Schuster did it all by himself. As I said, Sullivan was credited as the editor, and actually, the idea to do this comic tying into the World's Fair was his idea and ultimately tied into the reason he left DC, unfortunately, but I will talk about that uh, in a later episode. The splash panel shows Superman leaping high over the grounds of the World's Fair, and you can see the Trilon and the Perisphere, as well as several other buildings below him. The introduction text is the same that was used way back in Action Comics number 7, and we will see this reused a couple more times down the road. As a side note, both the Trilon and the Perisphere were torn down when the fair closed in 1940 so that the scrap metal could be used in materials to go towards the war effort. However, in the 1980s, when Roy Thomas wrote All-Star Squadron, he established that on DC's Earth-2, they were never raised. And around issue 19 of that series, the squadron established their base inside the Perisphere, 
which I've always thought was a pretty cool idea and a nice way to tie it back into history. As our Superman story begins, a group of reporters, Clark Kent included, are trying to get the scoop concerning who a committee, presumably a political party committee of some sort, are nominating as candidate for governor. But they're turned away by a guy saying that they'll get the news when the committee is ready to make an announcement. As the group of reporters walks away dejected, Clark Kent slips away into a nearby alley. Shedding the guise of Clark Kent, Superman crouches down, then leaps straight up as the narration tells us, not inches, not feet, but yards. Story after story zoom by as Superman finally alights on a small ledge outside the building's tenth story. Perching outside a window, Superman listens as the chairman recommends to the committee that Tom North be nominated. The committee is unsure that North is the right choice, but grumble that there's no use holding out since the chairman has the final say. With news that North is the new candidate, Clark is soon back at the Daily Star, and the paper immediately goes to press with the front page headline. A little later, the committee prepares to make their announcement, but they're surprised to find out that all the reporters are gone. When the chairman inquires as to why, the assistant shows them the front page headline of the star that reads, Tom North Nominated, which leaves them shocked at how the paper found out the news. Back at the Daily Star, Clark speaks to his editor, trying to use the fact that he landed the big scoop about the nomination as leverage to get to let his boss, or to, excuse me, to get his boss to let him take a vacation. And Clark's dialogue here is nice because there's a lot of, uh, awkward pauses and errs and ums and it just shows Clark's timidity which really isn't something that we've seen till now in his dialogue. But despite the big scoop, Clark's boss tells him that he can't take a vacation because he's got a big story to cover. He's going to cover the opening of the greatest show on earth, the World's Fair in New York City. And this leaves Clark overjoyed at the news because as it turns out, the World's Fair is where he had intended to take his vacation anyway. But, since he's going to be covering the fair on his trip, he suggests that Lois Lane go along. You know, for the feminine viewpoint? I guess that's what they called it back then. But, his boss thinks that would be a fantastic idea. So, Clark heads out to Lois's desk and tells her the paper is sending her to cover the fair. And Lois is happy about the news until she finds out that Clark is going too then not so much. But anyway, they head out by train to New York, the big city, and the World's Fair. Clark tries to make small talk with Lois along the way, but is, well, he's shot down by Lois. But to her credit, she's a little more polite about it than what we've seen as normal for Lois. Not a lot, but a little. <laughs> Except for the fact that I know the future of these characters and where they're going, I would say Clark was actually starting to make progress. Anyway, cut to the railroad signal tower, where they're alerted to the fact that another train has missed the signal to stop, and that train is headed right towards Clark and Lois's train in a terrible crash. Clark, who by this time is on the rear platform of the train, apparently having given up, at least temporarily, on trying to put the moves on Lois, sees the other train headed right for them. With a leap, Clark hops to the top of the train and runs along the cars until he lands on the engine. As the engineer screams that the brakes will never stop the train in time, Clark, who, by the way, is still in his, you know, his uh, business suit, which is why I'm calling him Clark, jumps down onto the tracks and braces himself against the oncoming train, aiding the strained locomotive's brakes. Despite his efforts, the trains charge closer and closer to one another. But as they get within inches, Clark braces each train with his hands and feet, bringing each train to a complete stop, proving that he's not just more powerful than a locomotive, but more powerful than two locomotives. Shortly, the engineers and passengers clamor over the, the miraculous incident. A trio claim they saw a figure, a man, holding the trains apart, but the man has disappeared without a trace. Back inside the train, Lois tells Clark that Superman just stopped the train and prevented everyone from being killed. And a seemingly unnerved Clark says he didn't even know that they were in trouble. The story then moves forward what I can only think is a great deal of time because they skip over the time it takes to clear the tracks of the second train so that Clark and Lois's train can start moving again. 
and then finish the trip to New York, and we don't see Clark and Lois going to the fair from the station or anything. But anyway, in the next scene, Clark is touring the grounds on opening day of the World's Fair, alone, as it seems Lois has slipped away from him. But Clark is unconcerned, saying that it won't take much effort to find her. However, as Clark is looking for Lois, we then get the return of Super Eavesdropper, when Clark stops his search to listen in on a completely private conversation between a sculptor and the fair's organizers. Apparently, the sculptor had created a statue for the Infantile Paralysis exhibit, but because the construction of the exhibit is way behind schedule, it's not going to be finished in time to open. The sculptor is a bit annoyed by this, worried about all the children that would have benefited from the display, and wondering how the fair will raise money for them. Later, Superman makes an appearance, landing at the site of the unfinished exhibit, where no one is working. So apparently the exhibit wasn't all that important after all. Anyway, and thankfully, Superman feels differently, so he rips the scoop off the steam shovel and uses that in a burst of super speed to complete the excavation of the site, leaving basically a big mud hole. He then grabs a load of logs from a nearby truck and drives them into the ground before covering them with some rather quick-drying cement to form the foundation of the exhibit. He then leaves the fair's grounds to a nearby wooded area, uprooting several trees and replanting them around the exhibit to dress up the landscaping. With the exhibit building complete, Superman heads to the sculptor's studio, breaks in, and grabs the statue, carrying it back to the fair, which completes the exhibit and allows it to open and raise funds to go towards curing infant paralysis. With his good deed done, Superman resumes his search for Lois by springing to the top of the trilon and using his supervision to survey the grounds. Spying Lois, he changes back to Clark and shortly meets up with her, much to Lois's dismay. But again, Lois is unusually polite towards Clark and accompanies him when he suggests they go to view the nearby maritime exhibit. However, as they exit the exhibit, Clark runs into a guy. Lois recognizes him as Nick Stone, wanted criminal, and tells Clark to grab him. But Clark plays dumb, and Stone punches him in the face. Clark then pretends to be unconscious, just to see what would happen, as Stone forces Lois at gunpoint into a nearby taxi. Probably not Clark's best plan, but hopefully it will turn out okay. Superman follows the cab as it leaves the fairgrounds and arrives at a rundown building. Stone forces Lois inside the building, where he meets with two of his cronies. The thugs ask why he isn't back at the fair with the others, you know, the others, and Stone explains that Lois recognized him. Lois then asks what villainous hijinks they're up to, and instead of just telling her to shut up, Stone pulls the typical villain move and monologues, explaining to Lois that they're after the rainy jewels, which are on display at the fair. Apparently there's a fireworks show planned, and while the people are distracted watching the fireworks, they plan to swipe the jewels. Of course, having just told her this, Stone decides that he must shoot Lois to keep her from telling anyone else. So he pulls his gun and fires. But, at just that moment, Superman bursts through the window and speeds towards Lois in the blink of an eye. As the bullet is mere inches from Lois, Superman reaches out and grabs the bullet with his bare hands. He then sets his sights on the crooks, body slamming and making quick work of them before grabbing Lois and making an exit. As Superman leaps through the city with Lois in his arms, Lois tells Superman to stop so they can talk. There's so much she wants to tell him, she says. But Superman says this is no time for silly romance. There's danger afoot. Criminals to stop. Football games to win. Actually, he doesn't say that. In my mind, though, that's what he says. So, back at the fair, two of Stone's thugs keep an eye on both their watch and the jewels' guard. As the fireworks begin, one of the thugs shoots the guard while the other rushes for the jewels. Inside the stadium, the crowd thrills to see not just the fireworks, but another amazing spectacle. Superman descending down from on high with Lois safe in his arms. Superman arrives as the thugs take off in the car. Depositing Lois, Superman gives chase, and the thugs are soon surprised to find Superman not only catching up to the car, but running alongside it. Superman warns them to pull over, but the crooks refuse, so Superman finally grabs the car, 
tipping it over and pulling the thugs out himself. With one thug under each arm, he heads back to the fair, leaving them and the jewels with the authorities. Nearby, a parachute makes ready to jump from a tower to amuse the audience. He jumps, but as he falls, his parachute malfunctions and doesn't open. Superman sees him falling and with a mighty leap is able to catch the jumper and land safely on the ground. Superman admonishes the jumper to be a bit more careful next time and is about to leap off when a pair of arms wrap around Superman's neck, very much to the surprise of Superman. Superman spins to find Lois staunchly clinging to the Man of Steel. Superman tries to shake her, even going so far as to do a series of violent flips through the air, but Lois hangs on unwavering. Finally landing back on the ground, Superman asks what he has to do to get rid of her, but Lois flirts with Superman before planting a big one right on his cheek. Superman is shaken by her brazen behavior and with a, Hey, look over there! leaps off, leaving Lois in the dust. Secluding himself behind an exhibit, Superman does a quick change back to the guise of Clark Kent and again meets up with Lois, who it seems is back to her old self because Clark no more pops around the corner and she begins screaming how much she hates him. Old habits die hard, I guess. Sometime later, back at the Daily Star, the editor praises Clark for his story on the fair, and Clark says readers should take his advice and go see the fair for themselves, because it's something no one can afford to miss. The End Okay, confession time. Since starting this podcast five months ago, I have been dreading this story. Dreading. I first read this back in late 2004 or early 2005, whenever the DC Rarities Archive Edition was released. I didn't like it much back then, and whether it was my mood at the time or slogging through all the stories in both the 1939 and 1940 World's Fair comics in just a short amount of time, I mean, all the stories in both books are pretty much the same. They all revolve around the World's Fair. The adventure titles involve the hero foiling some plot to disrupt the fair, the humor strips are wacky fun at the World's Fair, etc. I read it again in 2006 when I first got the Superman Chronicles volume, and I don't remember that reading improving my love for the story any. I even gave John Wilson a hard time when he was getting ready to cover it on his show, warning him how bad the story was. I just remembered it being painfully bad. But, because I'm dedicated to going through all of Superman's stories, even the bad ones, I resolved to charge forward. I mean, for crying out loud, I got through the story where Superman stabs a guy and holds him hostage in order to win a football game. So, surely I can make it through this one, right? Well, as it turns out, I was pleasantly surprised. It wasn't a great story, but it wasn't as bad as my memory had made it out to be either. It's a little reminiscent of the first Superman story from Action Comics number one in that we see Superman jumping from thing to thing with no real storyline other than the World's Fair tying all of them together. There's really not too much to this story. The stuff with Nick Stone takes up the most space, but I think the story was largely just an excuse to show off Superman and the fantastic stuff that he can do. My guess is that DC was banking on this comic introducing the characters to people, or at least giving them their first, you know, so to speak, first look at the character, if they hadn't read a comic book or seen the daily newspaper strip. Like I said, there were advertisements in the comics where you could clip a coupon and order the book by mail, but the majority of the issues were sold at the World's Fair itself. So, that's why I think this story was meant to be basically an introduction to the character and show how cool he is. Given that, the fact that it's a little light on story is okay, I think. In fact, I'm a little surprised that they didn't either recap the origin in a new sequence or simply reprint the first page from Action Comics number one. But as I'm finding out by doing this show and Legends of the Batman and looking at other Golden Age material for both of those, comics in this era just didn't put a lot of weight on the significance of origins. They were all about jumping right into the action of things. I mean, Superman's origin was only one page in his debut, and Batman didn't get an origin until his seventh appearance. And even then, it was only two pages. 
most of the other characters around this time didn't get origins or backgrounds at all beyond what was absolutely necessary. But anyway, given that this was, I'm sure, an introduction to the characters, it's interesting to see how differently the characters are portrayed. I talked in the synopsis about the softening in Lois's portrayal, at least until the end of the story, but Clark too is different. He just seems a lot more brazen about using his powers. Right at the beginning of the story, we see Clark using his abilities to get a story. And this is the first time we see Clark, well, Superman, using his abilities for personal gain in a situation where Superman wasn't really needed. We've certainly seen him profiting from Superman before by getting the story of an arrest or a situation after Superman gets involved, but only after. And I, I don't know, personally, I don't really like seeing him take advantage of his abilities for that sort of thing. In more modern stories, they've even shown Clark being uncomfortable with it. I mean, he can't, he can't ever play on an even keel with regular folks, because he's not a regular person. His abilities are who he is, and he, you know, he just can't simply turn those off. But it just seems to me that Clark, even in this era, should be a little more, and I'm not sure humble or modest is the right word, but just a little less eager to use his abilities for his own gain. At least he changed to Superman first, though, so no one wonders why Clark Kent is dangling from the side of a building. Unlike on the way to the fair, we see Clark stopping the train, still dressed as Clark. His glasses are gone, but he's still in his business suit and whatnot. And on one hand, I, I like that because once in a while, it's nice to see Clark just get in there and throw down without doing the change. Usually the dynamic shirt rip or the, the blue and yellow and red costume charging into action tops it, but once in a while, it's nice. But it's just not something we've seen him do a lot in the stories covered to this point, so it kind of stood out. On a more positive note, this is also one of the first times we've seen Superman championing a specific cause, like raising money for finding a cure for infant paralysis. And we'll be seeing a lot more of this and seeing it done a lot more heavy-handedly in the next decades worth of comics and radio serials, especially during the World War II years. I wasn't all that impressed with the art in this issue. The pages are laid out fine, and there's a nice flow from panel to panel. It's just the lines themselves, they seem really loose and sketchy. Overall, it just feels like it needs an inker to come in and tighten things up. And if the credits online that Schuster inked this himself are correct, then that would explain things. It's not the worst art we've seen in the story so far, but definitely the worst for several issues. The last panel of the final page is yet another ad promoting further adventures of Superman, the Man of Tomorrow, in Action Comics. It's another nice ad, and I like that Schuster and other artists are you know, doing these ads each time rather than just statting the same ad over and over. And I think this also marks the first time we've seen the Man of Tomorrow used in the comics. It showed up as one of the titles of the newspaper strip in, I think, the first or second story. I'd have to look. I forget at the moment. But I think this is the first time we've seen that in comics, so it's nice to see that nickname being used more. This story has been reprinted in Superman, the World's Finest Comics Archives, Volume 1, Superman Chronicles, Volume 1, and DC Comics Rarities Archive. And the last book there that I mentioned reprints the entire contents of the 1939 New York World's Fair comic, not just the Superman story, so that makes for a nice little time capsule of the issue. Over 70 years of history in film, television, radio, and comics. Who are you? A friend. A hero sent to Earth from a doomed planet to fight for truth, justice, and the American way. A strange visitor from another planet? Superman. This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio. A look at Superman's history in all mediums, from comics to film to merchandise, animation, and beyond. 
I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. Join me every Sunday and Thursday for a twice-weekly exodus into the world of Superman. Sundays we explore a wide range of topics throughout the mythology, from the heights of Metropolis to the fields of Smallville and to the depths of the galaxy of Krypton. Plus the latest news, gossip, and a look at Superman and other media. On Thursdays, we review the Superman comics following the Infinite Crisis in 2006, all the way up to the present, month by month, issue by issue. And don't forget the SFR Daily Planet, a mini-cast giving you the scoop on the Man of Steel as it happens. So visit supermanforever.com or iTunes and, of course, the Superman Podcast Network and begin the never-ending battle today. Superman Forever Radio. All Superman. All the time. in this part of the show, I would talk about other books that came out around the same time. But this book came out the same month as Action Comics number 12, so I've already covered all of that stuff back in episode 17. So my original plan was to give a little bit of history on the World's Fair and just give some more information about it. However, when I started researching, I found several great websites that are just chock full of information and pictures and just great stuff. So, I'm going to put links to those in the show notes at greatcrypton.com, and you can check those out for yourself to get your fill on the history. What I thought I'd do instead is, since I have the DC Comics Rarities Archive, which, as I said earlier, reprints the entire contents of the issue, I thought I'd just go through that and share some of the stuff that was inside it. Uh, Like I said, it, it makes for a nice little time capsule of the issue. And I'm not going to do synopses of all the stories, but just to kind of get a feel of how this issue was promoting the fair and get a small taste of what visitors saw at the fair or what they, you know, what they thought they could expect to see. So uh, the first story in the book is the Superman story, which we just covered. Then there are two filler pages, both drawn by Sheldon Maldoff, that list the first one lists fairs that have happened around the world between 1851 and 1939. And it also lists a couple uh, just general facts about the New York World's Fair in 1939. And one of those is that the cost was $156 million, which translated to today's dollars is about $2.5 billion. And it also said that it covers 1,216 acres and that 60 million visitors were expected. The next filler page is entitled From the Fair Corners, and it talks about the Trilon and the Perisphere that I mentioned earlier in the episode. And it says that the Trilon stands 700 feet tall, when in actuality it was only 610 feet tall. It also gives some facts about the Perisphere, that it was 200 feet high, and the interior was twice the size of the Radio City Music Hall. So that was a pretty good size. We then have a six-page story by Tom Hickey called Chuck Warren Goes to the World's Fair. And this is, as far as I know, the first and only appearance of the Chuck Warren feature. Then we have a two-page feature, Hanko Goes to the World Fair, 3,000 Miles on Horseback. And it was uh, by Craig Flessel. And Hanko was a regular feature in More Fun Comics from late 37 to early 1938. And I, yeah, it only ran till early 38, so it was no longer running by the time this came out. But it was resurrected for this comic. And then we have a uh, six-page text piece with spot illustrations by Craig Flessel that just details the history and purpose and attractions at the World's Fair. And then we get a another two-page filler drawn by Sheldon Maldoff that talks about it's called Would You Believe It? And it just lists various facts uh, about different attractions at the fair. And one of them it talks about is the Maritime Building, which we just saw Clark and Lois visiting in their adventure. Then we get a four-page Butch the Pup feature called Butch the Pup at the New York World's Fair. And Butch the Pup was a one-page filler that ran in random issues of Adventure and More Fun Comics, and they were all done by Fred Schwab. Then we get another two-page filler drawn by Sheldon Maldoff called Cuff Notes from the Fair, 
which again just lists various facts. Interestingly, the title on this is mistitled Cuff Notes from the Far. So, evidently proofreading wasn't uh, too big of a deal. We then get a two-page ginger snap strip by Bob Kane, and that's a, normally a feature from more fun comics. Then we have a six-page Scoop Scanlon five-star reporter strip by Bill Eli, and as regular listeners know, that was normally a feature in Action Comics alongside Superman. Then we have another two-page filler called Wonders at the Fair that talks about various exhibits and uh, talks about how if all the Frankfurters that will be sold at the fair this summer were strung together, they would cover 3,000 miles. That's a lot of hot dogs, people. And then it talks about famous jewels of history are on display, but no word if the rainy jewels were part of that display. And then, proving that sexism was alive and well in 1939, one of the features on, on this filler page reads, Women drivers will be in all their glory when they climb into the speedy little gas autos. The idea is to hit anything in sight. The cars are capable of doing 15 miles per hour, but a revolving floor gives the sensation of going 30 miles per hour. Which is funny because women can't drive, I guess? <sighs> Don't blame me, folks. I'm just reading the book. Then we have an eight-page feature called a Day at the World's Fair with Jim and Jane. And it was written and drawn by Craig Flessel. And it just features Jim and Jane going through to various exhibits and talking about them. It ran in this book, and this exact feature was reprinted in the 1940 issue. But Jim and Jane never had any other stories in any regular, you know, any regular features. And then we have another two-page filler called Tidbits from the Fair that lists nine strange facts from the fair, including a, a very uh, racist depiction of a rickshaw runner. Ah, and then we have a 12-page Slam Bradley story. Slam Bradley at the World's Fair. Slam was, of course, by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and was a regular feature over in Detective Comics ever since the first issue of that title. And this, this particular story is interesting because at the end, uh, Shorty Morgan, who was... Uh, sort of uh, Slam Bradley's sidekick, he mentions that they're going back to Cleveland. So once again, we see Siegel referencing his hometown. Michael Kaiser and I have really been enjoying these Slam Bradley stories over on Legends of the Batman as we've been looking at them with Batman stories. And this one starts off, citing the police battling a gang of cornered gangsters. Slam Bradley, ace private detective, accompanied by his partner pal Shorty Morgan, decides to take a hand. Disregarding death, he races into the surrounded apartment and flings himself into the criminal's very midst. And it shows Slam and Shorty busting through the door into a room full of criminals. And uh, Slam says, so, you want to fight, eh? Well, here's a fist full of it. And he punches one of the ne'er-do-wells right in the jaw. Very awesome. After the Slam Bradley story, we get a, a two-page filler, again by Sheldon Maldoff, called Curiosities from the Fair. And one of the things it talks about here is the Westinghouse time capsule. And it reads, 6939 AD. That's when the time capsule, buried 50 feet under the Westinghouse building, will be opened. This odd tube will contain a cross-section of our lives today. Newspapers, photos, etc., etc. Made of cupelloy, a copper alloy, it is believed the tube will resist water and the other elements and is 7.5 feet long. And if I can take a break for a minute, I actually did some research into this time capsule because it, I just find these time capsules fascinating. This is the Westinghouse time capsule, which, as the text said, is meant to be opened in 6939 AD, 5,000 years after the fair. When they were gathering together the items for the capsule, they put a lot of effort into making sure that the thing would still be around 5,000 years from now. Uh, the capsule itself was, as the text said, made of cupelloy, which is a copper—excuse uh, me—a copper alloy that is supposed to be highly resistant to corrosion. The capsule was put together and then sealed with asphalt for even more protection, and that was just the outer shell. Inside the cupelloy container, the contents sit within a glass capsule that has been flushed with nitrogen gas to hopefully avoid oxidation of the contents. As for the items themselves. 
They took a lot of care to make sure that none of the items would react with one another, uh, that none of them would decompose into harmful acids or gases, and that none of them contained any liquids. There were a few organic items, such as seeds for wheat, corn, cotton, soybeans, etc., and all of these were sealed in glass tubes to hopefully protect them as much as possible. Items in the capsule were carefully selected to showcase how life was in the early 20th century. There were toys, books and magazines, though sadly no Superman comics, uh, common household items, clothes and grooming supplies, fabrics, materials, writings from noted men of the time like Albert Einstein, as well as newsreels and microfilm containing thousands of pages of text and pictures. The Westinghouse building where they buried the capsule is long gone now, but the position is marked by a stone marker. And in case that marker is ever lost, there is a backup plan for locating the capsule, because when they were preparing it, Westinghouse put together what is known as the Book of Record, which describes the contents of the capsule, its purpose, and its location. And thousands of copies of this book were sent to libraries and places all over the world, in hopes that by the time, you know, five millennia had passed, the capsule wouldn't have been lost forever. So, like I said, I really find this time capsule interesting. I have no idea if I'll be around when they open it, but here's hoping. And the next feature is The Sandman, a ten-page feature by Gardner Fox and Burt Christman, uh, both going under the pen name of Larry Dean. And The Sandman is Wesley Dodds, and the introduction to the story describes him as weird figure of the night, garbed in mask and cloak. His guns bring sleep, his deeds justice, in a world of injustice. He is wanted by the police forces of two continents, yet he has never committed a crime. A modern Robin Hood, friend of the afflicted. Very cool. The Sandman will eventually be given a quote-unquote traditional superhero costume, and even a sidekick named Sandy the Golden Boy. But for these first couple years, his costume consists of a trench coat, fedora and a gas mask very much a mystery man type of character and a really awesome look that stands out even today in a sea of spandex clad superheroes many people cite adventure comics number 40 as the first appearance of the sandman and i think it's generally regarded that that story was written and drawn first but this appearance in the 1939 issue of new york world's fair comics was technically the first appearance of the sandman as it went on sale a few weeks before Adventure Comics number 40. Regardless though, as of this appearance, the Sandman is the biggest DC character to debut to date after Superman and Batman, and he's going to go on to have a lengthy run in Adventure Comics, as well as World's Finest Comics when we get there, and he'll have appearances alongside the Justice Society of America when that team debuts in All-Star Comics. We then get a two-page Wonders at the Fair, another filler feature by Sheldon Maldoff listing off some uh, alleged interesting facts about the fair. And the final feature in the book is a 12-page story by Fred Gardner, starring Zaytara, the Master Magician, in the World's Fair exhibit. And Zaytara is a regular feature in action comics, as we've seen, so it's interesting to see how heavily action comics was represented in this book. The inside of the back cover is an illustration by Craig Flussell that shows a representation of the globe with the Perisphere and Trilon perched on top and people from all nations joining hands around and dancing and laughing and singing. The caption at the bottom reads, We trust this book will serve to remind you of the many pleasant and happy hours you enjoyed at the New York World's Fair. And we sincerely hope, too, that it will assist, perhaps in some small fashion, in strengthening and promoting peace and friendship among the nations of the world. And that's the end of the 1939 issue of New York World's Fair Comics. Like I said, the entire issue was reprinted in the DC Comics Rarities Archive, which also reprints the 1940 issue of New York World's Fair Comics, as well as the big All-American comic book, which came out in 1944. And it's rare for these archive editions to reprint an entire comic from cover to cover, since most comics in the Golden Age were anthology titles, the archive editions are usually plucking features from a lot of different books to make up one archive. But like I said, this reprints all three comics in their entirety, and 
It can be pretty pricey at cover, but with a little patience, you can probably find one on eBay or another online comic retailer at a reasonable price. All three books are very historical and definitely worth tracking down if you are interested in the Golden Age material. Presenting the Amazing Spider-Man Classics Podcast Year 2. Starring myself, John Wilson, along with Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Grant, and your favorite guest hosts of the comics podcasting community, bringing you the classic 1960s adventures of Peter Parker, Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy, and the gang, as told by Stan Lee, John Romita, Don Heck, Jim Mooney, John Buscema, and more. And to kick the year off, we're running a special episode in March with... Uh, uh, hold on, wait a second... Hey there, webheads! 12 months ago, a very special podcast came onto your iTunes feed, and to celebrate 12 months of that podcast being on your iTunes feed, we thought we'd take you on a special date to the movies, and what a movie it is! Why, it's about our very own webhead spinner Spider-Man, the first installment of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, guest starring one of the Power Rangers. Oh boy, we're in for a good time, so strap yourself in, and here's the hosts. This isn't a way a podcast is supposed to work. Peter, you're seeing the Spider-Man Sam Raimi movie without me? Why, no, Betty. I'm seeing it with all my friends, the Amazing Spider-Man Classics listeners, and you're invited, too. Even Liz Allen? Yes, Betty, even Liz Allen. Okay, as long as Ned can come. You know why I hate you, Leeds? Because you have a right to listen to this episode with Betty. The shadow of Spider-Man isn't standing between your earphones. Episode 28 kicks off the new year with an in-film commentary on the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. And then we continue on in future episodes looking at the further adventures of Spider-Man, an amazing Spider-Man, spectacular Spider-Man, and every guest appearance and cameo we can find. Only at Amazing Spider-Man Classics, found on iTunes and at AmazingSpiderMan.Libsyn.com. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a 10-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. The dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libson.com. Every legend has a beginning. Thank you, everyone, for joining me this time out. Next episode. Next episode is going to be a big, big show, so don't miss it. I'm going to have a special guest on the show, and we will be looking at three comic books. Action Comics number 13, Action Comics number 14, and the historic Superman number 1. We're going to have big stories, historical moments, and a guest host. So it should be a great time, and I hope you'll come back for that. If you have questions or comments, feel free to email me at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. I'd love to hear your feedback on the show and other stories. Also, be sure to stop by the website at www.greatcrypton.com for show notes. I'll have those links in there for the information about the World's Fair, so be sure to check that out. At the site, you'll also find links to the RSS feed and the show's Facebook page, as well as iTunes. If you subscribe via iTunes, Feel free to leave a review as it lets people know that the show is good and it also uh, gives me an avenue to get feedback about what you like about the show. The show is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com, home to many fine Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts. And finally, I invite you to check out my other show that I co-host with my friend Michael Kaiser, Legends of the Batman, where we are covering everything Batman from the beginning. And you can find that at batmanlegends.com. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. 
So thanks again for listening to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman. I will talk to you later. Goodbye. capsule before the year A.D. 6939, let him not wantonly disturb it, for to do so would be to deprive the people of that era of the legacy here left them. Cherish it, therefore, in a safe place. Five thousand years from now, the peoples of the future will look back on us as we look back on the early Egyptians and Babylonians. The time capsule down there is actually a message from our time to theirs. Those who open and study it will know more about us than any man living today. But Jim, how in the world do you know it'll last so long? Because the copper tools of the ancients have come down to us from even farther back. The capsule is made of a still better copper alloy called cupelloy. It's hard as steel and equal to pure copper in resistance to corrosion. Well, what I'm wondering is how anybody will know how to find it in the year, what was it, 6939? How to find it, what's in it. In fact, everything about it was printed in a book of record of the time capsule. It's on permanent paper and has been distributed throughout the world. To libraries, museums, lamasaries, monasteries, temples, every safe place imaginable. Well, who picked the stuff that was to go in it, Jim? A committee, aided by authorities in every field of science and the arts. It's a complete record of our civilization. Is this exactly like the capsule? Yes, and it's cut away so you can see how it's packed. These side cases show you the variety of things in it. Yes, it won't Ladies, that'll reveal a lot about us to future scientists. It sure will. They'll think we're nuts. <laughs> Are these little reels the microfile? Yes. It's hard to believe, but on these small reels of film are reproduced all these books, papers, and magazines. It's a record of 10 million words and a thousand pictures. Well, how will they read them? A small microscope is included. But there are also instructions how to make a large reading machine. Also, how to make a motion picture projector for the three special newsreels. I suppose clocks and things like that are in it, too. Everything from samples of fabrics to a dozen different kinds of common seeds. I bet a nickel I know something that isn't in it. Mickey Mouse. You'd lose, bud. Mickey Mouse, Dick Tracy, Barney Google, they're all there. Even toys and money. Why, the list of contents alone takes up 17 pages of fine print. Boy, they weren't fooling when they made that capsule, were they? It's the brains of the world done up in a small package. And it's the most permanent exhibit at the fair. It'll still be here when the rest of this place is nothing but dust. That's remarkable.